Hello, this is uh, Pastor Chuck McGathy from the studios of WMYN, WLOE, doing something unusual, something that I had not planned on doing, but has been proved to be necessary with the changing situation that is going on in our world today. You are undoubtedly aware that a pandemic is upon the world, and churches all across the world are responding with love and concern for their congregants by keeping them safe and keeping them healthy and hoping that together as we work to defeat this virus that we will once again be able to rejoin in person. But until that time comes, we have the wonderful uh, privilege and opportunity of broadcasting over this radio station. And so I hope that you will tune in and invite others to tune in on a regular basis on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock to hear a direct and live word from Christian pastors. I would invite any pastors that would like to join with me, uh, even though this broadcast has been the time slot for First Baptist Church of Madison for almost 60 years. It is certainly our intention and uh, joy to welcome others in the Christian community who may want to uh, speak a word of encouragement and hope to our friends and neighbors all throughout Rockingham County and beyond as they were able to hear this broadcast. I would like to begin with a few announcements before I go into a time of uh, sharing with you the morning message and also sharing with you the weekly Bible study. So there will be two major components to this broadcast. First will be those comments, which, by the way, I had already prepared to share with the congregation from the pulpit this Sunday, and also a time of Bible study that will take us to focus a little bit more intently on a passage found in uh, the scriptures. This week we'll begin with the beginning. The title of that uh, message will be In the Beginning God Created from Genesis 1. So let me begin with a few announcements. As I've already said, I welcome my fellow pastors who would like to uh, get together with me to come in uh, to share part of this broadcast so that their congregation can hear their voice. Uh, you're welcome. Just please let me know. Come on in. We will join together as brothers and sisters in Christ as we share and encourage our community. The second thing I'd like you to know is this. No matter what you're feeling right now, God is with you, and he is near to you, and he will never leave you. An epidemic may separate us physically, but in him we are together. So utilize your telephone, your email, your text, or any other way other than physical contact to show your love for others. In a strange way, this may actually be a way God brings us together from a polarized society to one where we recognize the value and worth in one another. Also, we need to be aware that those non-essential gatherings that take place, we'll have to rethink how badly do we need to do those things. We're doing that right now. I'm meeting with my fellow pastors this afternoon via phone 
to talk about how best we can address Christian ministry in the coming days. So do be in prayer for us as we discuss this and try to find ways that we can encourage one another in coming days. And remember, this will not last forever. But we can, by taking steps now, help save lives by slowing down the spread of COVID-19. At this time, what I'd like to do is I'd like to read a message from the executive coordinator of Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. Our church is a partner of Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, and Paul Baxley is not only the executive coordinator of, of Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, but he is a North Carolinian and a friend. Let me share with you his words, which would be not only for those who are part of CBF churches, but I think they would be shared and the sentiments would be shared across the spectrum by many churches. He writes, proclaiming grace, truth, and love in uncertain times. This Sunday morning will be unlike any I remember in my ministry and even in my life. Not only in our Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, but indeed across the world, congregations are facing the tremendous challenges being posed by the spread of COVID-19. We are seeking to be faithful to our desire to offer worship and praise to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We know we have a gospel of grace, truth, and love to proclaim during frightening and uncertain times. We believe that especially in this challenging moment, we need one another for strength and encouragement. We also claim a strong sense of obligation to protect all people, including the youngest and oldest among us, from the risks associated with the spread of a virus that we do not yet fully understand, much less know how to treat. This unusual week has required congregations and leaders across our fellowship to make really important and agonizingly difficult decisions. Pastors and lay leaders have spent hours in meetings and discussions seeking guidance. From my conversations with friends and colleagues, I know that there has been extraordinary stress involved in these decisions. Some congregations are choosing not to meet at all this Sunday. Others are operating on a vastly reduced schedule, and some are proceeding as normal while encouraging people to use best judgment about participation. In many congregations, ministers are leading worship services in empty sanctuaries, but live streaming into homes of church members. Throughout our fellowship, congregations and leaders are seeking faithful and responsible ways to offer care, support, and companionship without risking the health and safety of church members and guests. Many of us are recognizing that each day, as more information comes in, we must revisit decisions made only a day before. These days require a seemingly unprecedented balance of agility and caution, as well as courage and grace. This Sunday, I invite all of you to join me in praying for congregations in and beyond our fellowship, not only here in the United States, but around the world. Pray for wisdom for leaders and church members alike. Pray for strength and courage for the facing of this hour and the living of these days. Pray that the Holy Spirit will guide us to the most faithful ways to live out our faith and carry out our ministries while protecting the health and safety of all. Pray that on this unusual Sunday morning, when many more of us will worship alone than is normal, 
that we will still experience the love, power, and presence of Jesus in many ways that still comfort us and hold us secure. Pray that in the midst of this storm, we will find the most faithful ways to share Christ's love and extend his peace that surpasses all understanding. I also invite all of you to join me in praying for federal, state, and local officials who have the urgently important responsibility of making decisions and sharing information and coordinating responses so that the spread of this virus might be slowed and eventually controlled. Pray for doctors and nurses who will care for those who are ill. Pray for researchers who will do the life-giving work of developing a vaccine over the course of time. Remember particularly that this virus could have its most devastating impact on those who live in poverty, who have less access to care, or who live out of reach of information. As this week unfolded, two passages of Scripture have come more and more to the front of my mind and are arising more and more in my praying. First, I keep remembering many of the words that rise from Psalm 46. Let me share that with you. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam. God is in the midst of the city. It shall not be moved. God will help it when morning dawns. The nations are in an uproar. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our refuge. Be still and know that I am God. And then there is that powerful scene recorded in the Gospels when Jesus' disciples are on a boat in the midst of a peaceful Sea of Galilee when all of a sudden a storm arises, the waters rise, the boat becomes less secure, and the disciples are terrified. As the Gospel of John records, in the midst of the wind and the waves, the fear and uncertainty. The disciples look up and see Jesus walking to them on the choppy waters. He says to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. If you are a pastor preparing to preach on one of the most unusual Sundays of any of our lives, if you are a believer who will worship at home alone by live stream with your congregation or another, if you will worship in a congregation that is much more empty than usual because of this unusual moment, or if you will be home alone in this storm in prayer, if you are exhausted, afraid, and uncertain, I pray that you will experience the presence of Christ in the midst of it all, that in prayer or in song or in a silence you will hear him say, Be still and know that I am God. When we know Christ's presence with us in this storm and hear his voice, we will know that Paul was right when he affirmed, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That, my brothers and sisters, is a gospel of sheer grace. Thanks be to God. Well, I would like to add to Paul's words some of my own this morning. As I do so, I'd like you to think about two questions. Two questions that I will try to cover through the content of today's broadcast. 
The first thing I'd like you to think about is this, as you consider what it is that we need together to hear as a people today. Well, I would like you to think about these things, these two things. The first is, how should we regard one another? What does our faith teach us? What might we learn from this day? And the second question is this, how should we interact with science and scientific information? What does the scripture really teach us about our faith in God in his created world? Well, those two things will be covered today, so do pay special attention. But before I go further, I'd like to share with you one other thing. The history of the church has faced situations like this before. In the early days of the Christian church in Rome, plague swept that city. And as it did, people in fear responded. But Christians responded just a little bit differently. They loved each other, and they loved others who were suffering. They found ways to reach out. They found ways to care for them. And as they did, people noted that they had faith that meant something. Up until that time, Christians have been regarded as a silly sect. But people began to reassess their evaluation of Christians and think, perhaps they really do have something that we don't have. I hope that will be the case for the church as people see our faith and our courage in these days as we, by staying together and by reaching out to those in need, will demonstrate our faith. The second thing I'd like you to know is a story out of history which one of my fellow pastors, Mar Marcia McQueen, shared with me. She found this story about Martin Luther when his society was facing another peril called the Black Death. He writes, I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine, and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus perchance inflict and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me, and I have done what he has expected of me, and so I am not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person. I shall go freely as stated above. See, this is such a God-fearing faith because it is neither brash nor foolhardy and does not tempt God. Well, with that in mind, I think we're ready to proceed onward and have a time to consider our message for today. As we do so, I'd like us to have a time where we would, in normal situations, have a responsive reading, but I will share with you that reading today. You who live in the shelter of the Most High, who abide in the shadow of the Almighty, say to the Lord, you are my refuge and my fortress. You are my God in whom I trust. Because you have made the Lord your refuge, the Most High will be your dwelling place. No evil shall befall us. No scourge shall come near our tents. Those who love the Lord, God will deliver. 
God protects those who know the name of the Lord. God saves them and honors them in times of trouble. Show us our salvation, O God. Show us your favor as we offer you our worship. Typically at this time in the service, we have a moment where we think about our confession. Think with me as I read. O God, when we keep silent about our sin, we waste away with regret and guilt. We feel your hand upon us and our strength dries up. And so we acknowledge our sin to you, holding nothing back. For you are a hiding place for us. We trust in you to preserve us. Forgive us and reclaim us, we pray. Amen. And now hear words of assurance. Steadfast love surrounds those who put their trust in God, for God forgives the guilt of their sin. Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven. Be glad in God. Amen. I would like now to pray with you. If you would join me by bowing your head. This is called a prayer for a pandemic, and I think it's an appropriate prayer for our day. May we who are merely inconvenienced remember those whose lives are at stake. May we who have no risk factors remember those most vulnerable. May we who have the luxury of working from home remember those who must choose between preserving their health or making their rent. May we who have the flexibility to care for our children when their schools close remember those who have no options. May we who have to cancel our trips remember those that have no safe place to go. May we who, have, who are losing our margin money in the tumult of economic market remember those who have no margin at all. May we who settle in for a quarantine at home remember those who have no home. As fear grips our country, let us choose love. During this time when we cannot physically wrap our arms around each other, let us yet find ways to be the loving embrace of God to our neighbors. And now, if you're able, join me in praying the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. At this time, I'm going to take a sip of my coffee. I don't get to normally do this, but today I can. Got coffee in my special blue Florida gator mug. I don't know if it makes coffee better, but I think it does. All right, now having accomplished that, I'd like to share with you out of the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is an Old Testament book, and I'll be sharing from part of the first chapter and part of the second chapter as we begin our time of morning message. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakilah, in the month of Chislev in the 20th year. While I was in Susa, the capital, one of my brothers, Hani, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them about the Jews that survived, those who had escaped the captivity 
and about Jerusalem. They replied, the survivors there in the province who escaped captivity are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we may no longer suffer disgrace. I told them, that the hand of my God had been gracious upon me, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. Then they said, let us start building. So they committed themselves to the common good. The title of my sermon this day is Of Walls and Wells. As I considered what to comment upon, as I pondered these great scriptures we have before us today, I must admit that several themes came to mind. The account of rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls seems like an appropriate place to begin a story that helps us figure out the importance of the lengthy conversation Jesus has centuries later with a woman of Samaria. The story of Jesus going through the territory of Samaria is dramatic simply because of the context. In addition are the themes of loving and caring for the outsider, including women in the religious environment, the theme of grace and forgiveness and the idea that our God deals in truth and expects the same of us is all there. There is a fertile field for the one who will honestly and courageously examine this text for what it meant to the first hearers and what it may mean to hearers of the gospel today. I invite you to come along with me as we consider these ancient texts and see if God still speaks through them to the people in the 21st century. Now it all begins with the understanding of Hebrew history and how it plays a role and speaks in the background to the Jewish people who witnessed what Jesus did and heard what Jesus said. In order to fully comprehend the full power of the story, I'm about to tell of a woman at a well in Samaria. I must take you back, way back to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah built a wall. Many evangelical Christians will tell you that today, but too often it is told without a clear understanding of its meaning. There is a danger in appropriating a biblical story to fit a current context. Preachers who do that too easily need to go back to the basics of biblical interpretation. Today, I'd like to tell you a little bit more about this story because it is really here that this story of Jesus' encounter with a woman in Samaria begins. So let's start our story in the day of Nehemiah. After a series of devastating wars, Jerusalem walls had been severely damaged and were in need of restoration. But the best and the brightest of the Jewish population had been forcibly removed far to the north into the land we now know as Iraq. There, they stayed for a little over a generation. While in exile, without access to their temple and its worship practices, their religion began to take on steady changes. Religion became more family-centered, and the idea of the community synagogue was more deeply developed. Perhaps the most meaningful change was the Jewish resolution to once 
and for all become thoroughly monotheistic. The Jews had come to solidly embrace the idea that there is but one God, and Him alone should they serve. No longer would they entertain such ideas as Yahweh was the primary God among many gods. The Babylonian exile convinced them that there was only one God, and thus they became forevermore monotheist, believers in one God. In the meantime, those that had been forced into exile, those who had been left behind, had begun to blend their religion with that of the indigenous people, the Canaanites. As a result, they began to deviate from the traditional practice of Judaism and incorporated some new concepts and new gods. This is the beginning of Samaritanism because it was practiced in an area just north of Jerusalem called Samaria. When Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem with the other exiles, he found that the city's defenses were inadequate. A paramount concern were the city walls. These walls were originally built as defensive structures against invading armies. They were not designed to exclude or isolate the local inhabitants from foreigners or foreign trade. Their sole purpose was to provide a military defense in the event of an invasion. The gates were only closed to prevent a hostile army from invading. In that way, a city was always open for trade and pilgrims in need of rest, except uh, when under direct siege by an armed foe. Yet the system of protective walls had been neglected and were run down. Nehemiah recognized that without a completed wall around Jerusalem, another invasion would leave the people essentially defenseless and subject once again to either death or deportation. At about the same time, another Jew named Ezra came and led the people spiritually. What he did was read to them the rediscovered book of the law, the five books of the Torah. Once the people who had been deprived of this knowledge heard it most for the first time, they began to apply it rigorously to their lives. The hearing of the books of Moses helped them understand who they were and who they were meant to be. They embraced their revived faith fiercely and proudly as they did a rift developed between them and those who had been left behind, those who had adopted a hybrid form of worship. And so began a deep division and enduring hatred for one group toward the other. That hatred was somehow magnified by the knowledge that they were in fact kinfolk, religiously and ethnically, and because they were connected and had to encounter one another as neighbors, tensions and suspicions between Samaritans and Jews became an embedded feature of daily life. By the time of Jesus' ministry, the segregation between Jew and Samaritan was well established. It was expected, for example, that a Jew who would be traveling from Jerusalem to the Jewish north, an area known as Galilee, would not take the direct or shorter route that led through Samaria, but would instead follow a course that looked like a backwards-facing sea. Therefore, a Jew traveling north would go more than twice the distance along the Jordan River before turning westward to enter Galilee. This was the typical Jewish practice, and it was done routinely by faithful Jews so that no contact with the mixed-breed Samaritans would occur. 
Now, understanding all of that is the background of the story. Because Jesus doesn't follow the rules. Instead, he takes the direct route toward the Galilee by going due north, straight through Samaria, and passing through the Samaritan villages. Try and consider that within the context of our day and age. We too encounter people every single day with whom we do not agree. Their notions of God and their practice of religion are different from ours. They do not see things the same way we do. It challenges us to find a way to live together. Let me be quite honest here. The church has not always responded as Jesus did, but seems to prefer the way that walks around Samaria. Today, the church is undergoing seismic changes. The way we are approaching this Sunday is evident of that. The very earth beneath our feet is shifting so rapidly that many, if not most of us, find ourselves in a state of ongoing confusion about the faith we embraced in less turbulent times. Now the meaning of faith is disputed. Even churches that once seemed to be stalwart Fortresses of stability are being rocked by tectonic change as the very ground upon which they are built has shifted and is moved. In many ways, I think the religious scene today is reminiscent of the Samaria Jesus traveled through. The people he reached are like people today, people who have a smattering of religion and messed up lives. One of those Jesus encountered was a woman in the midst of the mundane task of drawing water for her home. Let's consider her as we read John, the fourth chapter. Starting in verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Joseph Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. What was Samaria? Well, we know much about the land of the Samaritans. They were considered religious half-breeds by the Jews. The Jews who returned from exile found these aliens, these religious squatters, smack in the middle of their land. They considered the religion of these people as flawed. 
It would have been far easier had they just been complete pagans like the Romans or the Greeks. But the Samaritans were more like crazy cousins who lived in the hills. You know you're related, but you're loath to admit it. That pretty much describes the attitude and practice of the common Jew as he dealt with the Samaritans. Not only would he not talk to a Samaritan, but a righteous Jew would not even travel through Samaritan territory. And that is why Jesus' actions in this story are so remarkable, so startling. In fact, Jesus was boldly controversial and faced tremendous criticism because not only did he walk through Samaria, he also spoke to Samaritans. Ah, Jesus does not even satisfy himself with that breach of etiquette. He takes it even further when he pauses on his journey to speak with a woman, and not just any woman, but a fallen Samaritan woman. The timing of her trip to the well was a dead giveaway. You see, all of the proper women of the village had already come to the well when it was cooler. They had met, drawn their water, and socialized long before this woman showed up. The woman in John's story came when it was hot and deserted. She was an outcast in a land of outcasts, and every one of Jesus' disciples could see that she was a loser. We soon discover that life had not worked out for her. As the story goes on, we learn that she has been passed around from man to man as if she was a bottle of whiskey shared by a troop of hobos. Most likely, that was not her choice. But it was her fate, dictated by a broken society that failed to treat women as equal human beings. Nevertheless, she was ashamed and broken, and she was, after all, a Samaritan. Well, let's pause for a moment and see if we can find any connection with a Samaritan woman. First of all, she lived in a religiously confused environment. As she shows in this conversation, there was plenty of debate about religion. She was even prompted to try and make that the focus of the conversation. We, too, know what that is like. It is so easy to argue, but much harder to bear one's soul. But it did not matter. Jesus was looking into her heart, not at their religious differences. Don't we too live in a religiously unsettled land? Even if we choose to adopt the attitude of excluding all challenges to our faith, even if we cover our ears as we walk through Samaria, we cannot help but sense that our world is changing in some irreversible ways. We may wish for, we may even pray for the good old days, but guess what? The good old days, if they ever really existed, are now long gone. What we have left is Samaria. We can't avoid it. It is where we now live. It is when we find ourselves in a strange and unsettling environment, a place where all of the rules are changing and everything is up for grabs that we have to make a choice. Jesus did. He chose to talk to the sad, lonely woman who came to the well alone in her shame to draw water. Jesus refused to be distracted by the clutter of religious opinions that pressed upon him from his culture. Instead, he focused on her, the human being who stood in front of him. Jesus did not condemn her. He did not pretend she wasn't there. 
Jesus accepted her as she was. Loving others just the way they are ought to be the first lesson in every evangelism class. Jesus could see that this woman was a mess. In fact, her life was a lot like many of our lives. She was driven by the winds of her culture and forced into a mold that never suited her. She needed liberation and redemption. These seemed like impossible dreams to her. Now, listen to this. Whenever we drift into despair, whenever we lose our sense of personal value, whenever we accept second best because we think we'll never find love and grace, whenever any of that is true for us, then know that we know what it felt like to be the woman at the well. But the good news is this. Jesus is still traveling through Samaria. He is traveling through our village today, and he is looking for someone to give him a moment of their time, someone to get to know, someone to love. Is that someone you? I want you to notice one more thing about this great story that John tells. We are not exactly sure what it was that changed the woman's heart. It might have been the teaching of Jesus. It might have been that he got to know her. It might have been the simple fact that he went out of his way and broke convention by simply talking with her. Who knows? All we can say for sure is that she was changed. And through her changed life, others, other Samaritans were changed too. Most of the time, that is just how God works in our lives. It is subtle. It is as the great preacher Peter Marshall once described, the waters of the oceans of God's love do come up into the tiny bays of our unbelief. Broadcaster uh, and great uh, from the BBC, Malcolm Muggeridge, was in some ways like that woman at the well. He was neither poor nor outcast, but he did feel a profound emptiness. As a young man, he wrote his father these words, I want God to play tunes through me. He plays, but I, the reed, am out of tune. Looking for something to believe in, he flirted with communism. He went to Moscow, but was soon disillusioned by what he found there. In his 40s, he wrote in his diary, Christianity to me is like a hopeless love affair. It is infinitely dear and infinitely unattainable. I look at it with constant longing. But then a decade later, Malcolm became a Christian. He couldn't explain exactly what happened, but his life had changed. His new Christian friends were disappointed that he couldn't produce some sort of dramatic conversion story, but he couldn't. The only explanation I can give you is that in some way, Jesus put in him a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. After his conversion, he wrote about the kind of man he had been, a man who enjoyed money and fame and the pleasures that these things can bring. But listen to what he said about those pleasures. He said, multiply these tiny triumphs by a million, add them all together, and they are nothing, less than nothing, a positive impediment measured against one draft of that living water Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty, irrespective of who or what they are. What I ask myself, does life hold? What is there in the works of time, in the past, now, and to come, which could possibly be put in the balance against the refreshment of drinking that water? 
today, right now, Jesus is passing through our Samaria. And he is offering the living water to whoever is thirsty. Are you thirsty? Perhaps it is not you, but the one who is the stranger, the one on the other side of the wall. Will you follow our Lord and choose to see a person made in God's image, a brother or sister, and share a drink of life together? Let's pray. Lord, we are dry on the inside without you. The changes and shifts in our world leave us a bit shaky, but it also prompts us to open our eyes and see you in the midst of our inadequacy and in the midst of our confused and troubled world. Fill us now with the living water that we may know your love and share your grace with others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At this time, I'd like to shift in another direction. And I'd like to share with you a time of Bible study. Our study this morning will be from Genesis, the first chapter, verses 1 through 5. I grew up in an amazing era of history. I, along with my family, was privileged to witness in close proximity an unfolding story that will forever be associated with the greatest of human accomplishments, though I must admit I didn't know it at the time. Now looking back, I realize how fortunate I was to have had a father who played a role in mankind's first extraterrestrial adventure. My father worked at NASA. He knew astronauts. He spoke at the family table of space explorers, men like Alan Shepard, John Glenn, Ed White, and Gus Grissom. These were the kind of folks he ran into at work. He brought me their pictures, sometimes even autographs. With professionally made models, he showed me how the Gemini and Apollo missions would be accomplished. Sometimes he would travel around Texas to speak at local community groups about the progress of the space race and how we would beat the Russians to the moon. I well remember the day Neil Armstrong made that first bold step on the lunar surface. We had rushed home from vacation so we could watch on television the moment that symbolized the dedicated work of so many, including my father. I did not realize at the time just how blessed I was to be so close to all of that. This was just a normal family experience, or so I believed. As I look back on it now, I am so proud of the accomplishment of so many Americans, including my dad. Growing up like that, I never felt that the scientific conflicted with the religious. In fact, my reactions to the scientific advances of our day were in keeping with many of those early space explorers. What you may know, not know is that many of the early astronaut heroes, the right stuff, also included a deep religious faith. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin are best known as the first astronauts to land on the moon and take that giant leap for mankind, but you probably don't know that before they emerged from the spaceship, Aldrin pulled out a Bible, a silver chalice, and sacramental bread and wine. There, on the surface of the moon, his first act was to celebrate communion. Frank Borman was commander of the first space crew to travel beyond the Earth's orbit, looking down on the Earth from 250,000 miles away. Borman radioed back a message quoting Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
As he later explained, I had an enormous feeling that there had to be a power greater than any of us, that there was a God, that there was indeed a beginning. The late James Irwin, who walked on the moon in 1971, later became an evangelical minister. He often described the lunar mission as a revelation. In his words, I felt the power of God as I had never felt it before. These men, highly educated, scientific, pragmatic examples of the highest and best qualities among us, gazed out into the infiniteness of space and echoed back the words of John Glenn, who commented upon his final space voyage, to look out at this kind of creation and not believe in God is to me impossible. It just strengthens my faith. I know many of you agree with his words. Because of this, now is a good moment to consider the passage that introduces the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Our ancient ancestors were awestruck by the amazing complexity and variety of our planet and the universe beyond. I personally felt that when I toured a cave near Ronda, Spain. In my life, I have been fortunate to view great works of art by artists such, of such great renown as Botticelli, Raphael, and Michelangelo. None of their great works, however, moved me as deeply as the paintings left on those cave walls 30,000 years ago. Not only are these among the oldest works of human art, but one senses from looking at them, that a human being drew these upon the rock and tried to communicate a sense of wonder and yearning to express for posterity the transcendent experience of nature. Perhaps they were touched by God's ever-moving spirit. Something inside their souls motivated them to try and understand and express the divine. And as I sensed that, I too felt connected with them. I too want to try and express the wonder an innate testimony painted on the walls of the human heart. In the beginning, God. You know that old expression, time warm but never warm, out of date. Sometimes we can't see the forest for the trees. Well, I think it is an, act, an apt characterization of how badly we do Bible interpretation when it comes to these verses. For years now, the focus of attention placed on the first chapter of the Bible has been on the scientific verifiability of it. In other words, asking the question, is this good science or not? But that was never the intent of the author. His focus was not to provide a scientific observation of the beginning, which of course would have been impossible since he was not there to witness it, but to make plain to his readers, in the beginning, God. This then is a theological explanation, not a scientific one. Had God intended the writing of a science text, had that been his desire, I'm sure the Almighty would have provided a few more details than what we have here. Instead of science education, what we have here is faith education. 
Genesis 1 tells us that an already existent God brought ex nihilo, out of nothing, everything, every star, every river, every flower, every bumblebee, every person. Now, the most sad, most unfortunate part of the never-ending war between religion and science is that by directing our attention toward creation science, we lose our focus on the creator, the focus that was, I believe, the intent of the writer. Instead of acknowledging his love and power, we fight over distractions such as were there ever dinosaurs or if they might have evolved. When we do this, we invariably misapply the words and intent of the scripture. Genesis, however, seeks to tell us about God and who he is and how he wants to relate to us. You see, there is a beauty and power in the text that is ignored and lost in silly and pointless debates, just as silly as the popular argument in Jesus' time in the city of Jerusalem that vigorously debated just how many angels could sit on the head of a pen. Consider, for example, the first five words. In the beginning, God created. That alone was a remarkable theological proposition. Right off the bat, the author is asking his readers to think differently about God. The creation myths of the ancient world, and there are several, typically tell a story of gods who were themselves created. The Bible changes that narrative. One God, a creator not created. Now that was something profound. Furthermore, it is a message maintained completely throughout the pages of the Bible. It says God is. God was not made. God was not born. God is not our invention. God is transcendent beyond our ability to explain, control, deny, or manipulate. When Moses encountered God in the desert and asked who he was, he was told, I am who I am. In the Gospels, it is recorded that when Jesus was asked that he was greater than Abraham, he responded, before Abraham was, I am. In the final book of the Bible, we hear Jesus say, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. What a great connection of thought, a unity of testimony from Genesis through Revelation. Our God does not change. He is the stability, the transcendent ground of all being that holds all creation together. That is the witness of those first five important words of Genesis and just may help us in a day like today. What God created the heavens and the earth was, well, everything. But the earth was incomplete. No time limits are imposed. We do not know, nor can we ever estimate from the words of Scripture how much time passed between the initial act of creation and the next phase of creation. All we know is that the earth was formless and void, or a waste and emptiness, and darkness was upon the face of the deep primeval ocean that covered the unformed earth. The Spirit of God was moving, hovering, brooding over the face of the waters. The words we translate from Hebrew into English as without form convey more than a simple description of shape. Without form, tohu in the Hebrew means desolation, a worthless thing, confusion, emptiness, unreality. Language 
scholars have concluded. This word has no certain parallels in other languages. But there was also another description offered of existence before God's creative action. The earth is described as darkness. This meant more than the light was out. From the Hebrew word choshek, it describes a spiritual quality. Darkness includes misery, destruction, death, ignorance, sorrow, wickedness. Can you see how exploration in the original language helps us understand this statement so much better? Without God's intervention, chaos reigns. Without God's touch, matter disintegrates into a worthless waste, and so would we. But we are his creation. If we were to divorce ourselves from his presence, if that were even possible, all that would remain would be less than worthless. It would be evil. Even before we get to the third sentence of the Bible, we are presented with three everlasting and eternal truths. God is. God creates. The world needs God. In sentence three, we are told some incredibly good news. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That is the nature of our God. He injects Himself into the darkness, into the void, into the misery and desolation, into the deaths, ignorance, sorrow, and wickedness. He makes something brand new. Not only does He create, He recreates and restores. We are not yet to verse 3 of the Bible, but look at what a great word we already have been given. In fact, the remainder of the whole Bible is going to be a detailed explanation of just how God is going to restore His children, His creation. Talk about foreshadowing. In these first three sentences, we see what God is all about. The ancients saw it too. It was a vision of God that was quite different from the other gods about which they had heard. This God not only created, but he cared about his creation deeply and hovered, often translated as brooded like a parent cares for a child over it. It's easy from the way this is commonly translated into our language to get the wrong picture. Baptist scholar Clyde Francisco helps us to get a better understanding of what is meant here. The Spirit of God may be read wind of God or mighty wind, and it is probably a picture of a strong hurricane-like wind, wildly tossing the chaotic abyss. Now, as a Gulf Coast native, I grew up in Florida and Texas, I can tell you that this is a far different picture than a gentle fog hovering over the water. This is a picture of great power. I remember my first hurricane. Along with my brother, I went onto our street in Houston, Texas. The wind had begun to blow harder and howl ahead of the rain that was on its way. He said, watch this, Charlie. And with that, my brother lifted a heavy metal garbage can lid in the air, letting it absorb the fullness of the wind. And then he let it go. That was when I really understood how strong the wind had become. The lid that would normally have dropped onto the pavement with a clang instead flew about 50 feet before it skidded to a stop. That is how I now visualize the Spirit of God hovering over the water. Sometimes I think we forget just how powerful God really is. In a day like this, in a moment like this, we might forget 
what God can do in our lives and is wanting to do in our lives if we'll only open the door. Yet the truth is He moves among His creation with power and purpose and He is doing so now. He is constantly rearranging the chaos. In the Greek language of the New Testament, we read the ultimate example of the Spirit of God moving into the chaos. In the first verse of the Gospel of John, we are told, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Word is translated from the Greek logos. Logos is the opposite of chaos. Another way of saying chaos is a dark, formless void. Once again, we see the ultimate fulfillment of this foreshadowing in Christ, who is the Savior, who has come to once and for all deal with the dark, formless voids of our souls. Is not the Bible an amazing book? Does not it speak to our needs today? Finally, we learn what God did and what God does with the chaos. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. I think one way to understand Scripture is that God offers us a choice. We have two options, light and darkness. Only one choice is called good, but we are left with two options. The deepest spiritual lesson is not a debate over the mechanics of creation, but over our very souls. Who will we be? To whom will we be attracted? The good message Genesis forecasts is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. I've already quoted the first part of the Gospel of John. Now let's read a little bit further. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe in him. He was not the light, but the light came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Every one of us has been given a choice, established from the very act of creation. In Jesus Christ, the choice is clear. Welcome him, believe in him, follow him, become his new creation. Let us pray together. God of creation, make me new. Into my darkness and chaos, may your spirit blow like a mighty hurricane. Make my life a new beginning. Cleanse me with your power. Fill me with your light. Send me forth in your love. And now let us conclude our broadcast today with a benediction we share to all. No matter what you have done or become or promised to be, Never forget that God made you, knows all about you, and loves you unconditionally. May His divine love change you from the inside out, and when it does, you'll know what grace really is. Even more realize that this pervasive, persistent, and powerful force called grace is the best thing you'll ever discover. And when it finds you, your eyes will be opened, and you will see there's nothing but grace.